0: Our scripture reading this morning is Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. But I'm going to read the last verse from our previous text just for a little bit of context. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die. Than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. You are what you love. You are what you love. That's the title of a book uh, written by a professor named James Smith. And The idea behind that title is that the thing that primarily defines us is not what we know. The thing that primarily shapes our identity is not simply our theology. It's not just the moral code that we think is right, but what truly defines who we are, what truly forms our identity, is what we love. What we love more than anything else. And so this morning, as we look at this passage, the question I want you to begin to ask yourself right now is, what do I love? As we look at Jonah this morning, we come across this prophet who knows all the right words. Jonah knows who God is. He practically quotes straight from Exodus 34 here. When he describes God, he says that he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Jonah knows who God is, but he doesn't love him. He doesn't worship him. Here in this passage, he finally admits what we have seen in his heart this whole time. He finally gets to the point where he says that he would rather die than spend another minute serving this merciful and compassionate God. Now, how does something like that happen? How did Jonah find himself in this place where he is so angry with God, where he is just disgusted by his character? How did he get there? Well, he got there the same way all of us do. He got there through a disordered love. He got here because he loved something other than God the most in his life. These recent events, they expose that what he loves the most, what he finds most beautiful is not God, but something else. And so we're going to take a moment, we're going to look at this little pity party that Jonah is throwing for himself. And in there, we're going to find an important message for all of us. See, this passage shows us that everyone worships and whatever we worship shapes us and it takes a greater love to overcome an idol everybody worships <clears throat> now let me ask you this just if you if you're thinking about kind of the all-time great performances so an, an all-time great performance what comes to your mind <clears throat> maybe it's like a moment in sports maybe you think about Michael Jordan's flu game, or uh, Tom Brady when he came back in that Super Bowl a few years ago. Or maybe it's a moment in history, right? Maybe it's when Ben Franklin discovered electricity, or Marie Curie when she made these breakthroughs uh, in, in radiation science, or it's, it's the Fourth of July, right? Maybe it's when these scrappy colonists finally got the British to sail back to where they came from. There are some great Achievements. There's some moments in history where you think, wow, you guys did a great job. You can't do much better than that. Well, when it comes to being a prophet, you can't do much better than Jonah did in chapter 3 of this book, right? Jonah preached a, a pretty uh, meager sermon, let's say. The only words that, that he preached to the people of Nineveh was, 40 more days And Nineveh will be overthrown. And the whole nation listened. Everybody repented. It tells us that even the animals were covered in sackcloth by the time he was done. Now that is a major victory, right? Anybody else, any other prophet would be dancing with joy. I mean, mission accomplished. This is something for the record books. But Jonah is not celebrating. No, he's... He is livid. And he tells us exactly why. He is mad, he says, because God did exactly what he expected him to do. He is mad because God behaved the way God always behaves. He was consistent with his own character. He did the one thing that Jonah didn't want. God showed mercy. God showed mercy to this enemy nation of Assyria, these people who he hated. And and don't forget what this story is all about, right? Don't forget where we have come from over the last few weeks. Jonah has just received quite a bit of mercy himself, hasn't he? After all, this book starts off with him running from God with him endangering the lives of a bunch of innocent people, and then, instead of being punished for it, he is miraculously saved from death. You might think that after all that, he would have softened up a little bit, right? But no. Here's how one scholar puts it. He says that Jonah, the ardent nationalist, could not abide the fact that Yahweh had mercifully rescued Nineveh. Rescue was all right, right for Jonah, but not for that important enemy city. A world in which God forgives even Israel's enemies is a world that Jonah does not wish to live in. The reason why Jonah behaves this way is pretty simple. What you come to realize as you Look at Jonah's reaction as you look at his heart, as you you realize that Jonah was a prophet. He was a servant of Yahweh, but his own desires for his homeland, his allegiance to the nation of Israel, his love for his country were actually more important to him than God's plans. Jonah did not want the people of Assyria to be forgiven. They were terrorists. They were dangerous. They were a threat to his homeland. And and Israel, well, isn't that God's chosen people? How, How could God spare the enemies of his chosen people? And even worse than that, how could he use Jonah to do it? And so it all comes out what Jonah loves most in this world is not God. It's his way of life. It's his people. It's his country. Jonah is a prophet second and a patriot first. Now, it's kind of ironic, I think, that we come up to this on 4th of July because this really is the time of year where we are all about patriotism, right? We're all about celebrating and and the love of country, and and there is plenty to love about this country, right? We should celebrate. I'm planning to go do a bunch of fun stuff in the next couple of days, I hope. I was just talking to Jim, trying not to drown on the lake while I go to see fireworks, but uh, I want to do something fun. Um, But we have lots we can be grateful for. We got freedom of speech. We have the freedom to worship. There's a lot of things to be proud of. But what we see in the life of Jonah is, although patriotism is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. When a good thing, like loving your country, becomes the most important thing, when it becomes the ultimate thing, well, that's what the Bible calls idolatry. You see, on its own, loving your country is great. Celebrating the Fourth of July is wonderful. But if your country becomes the most important thing to you, what's going to happen? Well, instead of simply being proud of where you come from, instead of simply celebrating your heritage, well, you'll become bigoted towards other people, you'll become racist. You'll become nationalistic. You'll open the Bible and you'll start to read it through that lens. And when you come to the place where God reminds us that we're supposed to see ourselves as strangers and aliens and exiles and foreigners, well, that will make you mad. When God commands us to love our enemies and to love and welcome the immigrants who are among us in our midst, that will make us angry. See, when a nation becomes your God, it stops being something you're just thankful for, and it actually becomes your purpose for life. For Jonah, his love of country was so important that when God showed him, when God showed his love for some other nation, it was more than he could handle. Jonah says, I am ready to die when jonah's nation was threatened the first thing he does is he lashes out at god in that moment what jonah really worships is totally exposed and now maybe you're listening to this and you're thinking yeah jonah's got a lot of problems (laughs) i can tell you know i've heard a lot about him he's got some major issues but but this is really true of all of us it's not just jonah Whenever any of us take a good thing that God has given us and we make it into an ultimate thing, it becomes an idol. Whenever we take any good thing that God has given us and we make it an ultimate thing, it becomes an idol. This is, in fact, such a common and a frequent occurrence that John Calvin says man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. And, of course, God, he he prepares us for this. The very first commandment, we just read it. What is the first commandment? You should have no other gods before me. God gave us that first commandment because it's our fundamental nature to worship. We all worship. We all, we are designed in, in 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 a way that every single one of us, we have to find a purpose to live for. All of us, we have to look to something outside of ourselves for a sense of meaning, for a sense of accomplishment, for a reason to live. Now it can be all sorts of things, right? Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's achieving a certain title. Maybe it's a particular relationship that you're in or hoping to be in. Maybe it's looking beautiful or staying fit. Maybe your purpose is to to raise up well-adjusted and successful children. Or maybe having a good reputation. Who knows? It could be anything. It could be any good thing. Maybe it's world peace. But every person, if they are not ultimately living for God, they will find some other thing to live for. Some other thing that they're going to love, that they're going to desire, that they're going to serve, that they're going to worship above all else. We're all living for something. We are all loving something. There are no free agents out there. This is the point. We're all worshiping something. And so I've quoted, you know, John Calvin. I've quoted some philosophers, but, but let me quote Uh, uh, the great Bob Dylan here. (laughs) Bob Dylan says, you can be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You're going to have to serve somebody. Everyone worships. And that leads us to the second point, which is this. Whatever we worship shapes us. Whatever we worship shapes us. Love of country, it's not a bad thing. But Jonah's disordered love transformed him. His idolatry turned him into a racist, a xenophobic Man, a person whose heart was filled up with hatred for the people who weren't like him. It turned him into somebody who, in this passage, is standing boldly and defiantly against God. Angry that he wants to welcome foreigners and seek people who haven't known him before. His idolatry, it made him incapable of rejoicing when his own sermon was probably one of the most successful sermons in the history of the world. That's the impact of the idols in our life. That's what happens when we start to worship something else besides God. Another theme, we talked about how Scripture, what Scripture says about who we are and how we're created. Well, Scripture teaches that we are created with a purpose. Our purpose is to live in a relationship with God, an ongoing relationship with God that brings him glory and brings us joy. The way we Presbyterians say it is that that we exist to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what we're here for. But if something else takes up that central place in our lives where only God belongs, where only God fits, and it actually does us harm. Whatever it is that we're looking to for that ultimate purpose, that ultimate meaning, that ultimate joy in life, no matter how good that thing may seem, even if it's world peace, eventually that thing will become a cruel tyrant, a destructive force, In your life. Let me give you an example. Uh, Back in 2009, I was doing a lot of fundraising for a ministry I was a part of. And so I'm going to places where I clearly don't fit in, hanging out with the wealthy elites, (laughs) trying to rub shoulders and and make some contacts and network with people. And uh, I met this guy who was uh, in the financial industry in Boston. We set up an appointment. To talk about the ministry we were doing. And in between the time when I set up the appointment and the day of our meeting, the stock market collapsed. I'm sure you remember. It was a a big deal. And when I finally came to sit down with this man, I'll tell you what, I hardly recognized the guy. He was visibly shaken, he was gaunt. He was stressed out. He was not very easy to talk to. He seemed distracted. He was clearly shaken to the core. And when I realized as I talked with him, as I listened to just how much his view of the world had changed in the span of a few days, I realized that for him, this was more than a bad moment. The downturn in the stock market was more than just uh, something, that uh, an obstacle to recover from. But this, this was more than just money he had lost. He had lost his whole identity. He'd lost his life. His whole world was crumbling around him because the thing that he had built his life upon had been taken away in an instant. And I'm sure you remember seeing some of the news stories, right? He wasn't the only one. Saw stories of people jumping out of windows, completely despairing. Why does that happen? Well, that is a picture of idolatry in action. These lesser things that we love, these lesser things that we build our lives upon, they just can't live up to their promises. They can't. Actually, give your life meaning. They can't give you that hope and that fulfillment that they promise. These things, these lesser things, cannot save you. All they can do is enslave you. Our idols, they can't save us. They can enslave us. Think about it. If your whole life is built upon some relationship, What are you going to do if that person leaves you or gets mad at you or or if they pass away? If you're a younger person in the room and your whole life is built on being cool and and fitting in and and being accepted, what are you going to do when somebody posts some horrible thing online or when the cool kids decide that you don't belong with them? Or when you don't have the latest trendy clothes so that you can fit in with everyone else. See, it's not just that our idols are insufficient, but scripture says that when we base our lives on lesser gods, we start to become like them. When we base our lives on these lesser things, we start to resemble them. That's what we read in our call to worship, it was from Psalm 115. He says that the idols of the world have mouths but can't speak. They have eyes but can't see. They have ears but can't hear. Noses but can't smell. They have hands but can't feel. Feet but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. And then it says those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. This is the point. Whatever we worship transforms us. Worship always transforms us. When we worship the living God, we become more and more of the people that we were created to be. Paul says it this way. He says, even though our our bodies are dying, even though our outer self is wasting away, when we worship the Lord, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Do you remember that passage? That means that as we worship the Lord, we are becoming more free, more joyful, more holy. We are becoming more and more like our God every day, more alive. But when we build our lives around the things of this world, they also transform us. They make us like them, lifeless. Shallow, fragile, false. See, no matter how good that thing you're living for may seem, no matter how altruistic the goal may seem on the outside, they will always make us selfish. They'll make us petty. They'll make us fearful. They'll make us anxious. See, it is a terrible thing. To live your life serving something that's too small. It's a terrible thing to serve something that's too small. But how can you tell if that's you? How can you tell if if this is something that, that you're struggling with? How do we know if we're like Jonah? I especially want to mention this to the Christians here in this room. How do we know if we're like him? A people who can profess with our mouths this Great theology, but our true allegiance is to some other thing. How do we discover the idols in our lives? Well, here's something from Martin Luther. Martin Luther asks it this way. He says, is your heart attached to, and does it rely on something else from which you hope to receive more good and more help than from God? And when things go wrong, do you, instead of fleeing to him, do you flee from him? If that's you, then you have another God. You have a false God. You have an idol. In other words, uh, Martin Luther encourages us, we need to ask ourselves some questions. A, a, A good question to ask might be what he suggested Where do you run for comfort when things get hard? Is it to the Lord? Or is it to something else? What is it that you are looking to for your ultimate sense of security and safety in this world? Imagine uh, this is a fill-in-the-blank question. How would you fill in this blank? As long as I have blank, I'll be fine. Did you say as long as I have the Lord, I'll be fine? I cannot live without blank. Another good question, what causes your emotions to rise? Especially, what causes you to overreact to things? What makes you blow up? What makes you despair? What makes you lay awake at night, filled with worry and anxiety? These are some questions that might show us where our idols live. Another question, one that we think of when we look at Jonah is, what would you refuse to do if the Lord asked you to do it? These kinds of questions, they're good for us each to ask as individuals, but you know, we also need to ask them as a church, right? What are the good things that God has given us as a church that maybe we have turned into sacred things? What are the good things that God has given us that we have turned into ultimate things? Another way to put this, looking at the story, is there anything God could ask you to do that would make you respond with, I'd rather die. I would rather die than carry out that mission. Is there something that we could, could change at this church where you would respond, over my dead body. Over my dead body, we'll sing that kind of music. Or we'll move that piece of furniture. Over my dead body, we'll try to reach those kinds of people. If this passage shows us anything, it shows us that we have to shake these trees. Our idols, we have to discover them. And we have to deal with them. Because what we worship shapes us. Instead of making us more like God, instead of pulling us into his mission, our idols, they turn us in on ourselves. They turn us against God. They turn us against the advancement of his kingdom. These dead and lifeless things eventually make us dead and lifeless too. They rob us of our joy. They rob us of our sense of purpose our sense of mission when we worship lifeless things we become like them so what do we do well the third point is this it takes a greater love to overcome an idol the passage ends with god confronting Jonah and asking him a really stern question is it right for you to be angry what God is asking Jonah to do right there do you notice he's actually he's asking him to do what we were just talking about he's asking him to examine himself to ask some of those questions God is inviting Jonah to look at his emotions in that moment, to look at his anger, and to say, What is going on here? What's at the root of what you're feeling? And can you imagine for a moment if Jonah actually did that? What would have happened if if Jonah had just sat down and said, Why am I angry? Lord, what is it that's making me overreact like this? What's making me have these strong feelings? What is going on inside of my heart right now? What if you were able to do that? Next time you get caught in one of those moments, next time you get caught in your own outburst of anger or a moment of deep, unexpected anxiety, sorrow what if you could stop and ask those questions wouldn't that go a long way to exposing some of those deep idols that live in each of our hearts sure it would but of course that's still not enough it's not enough just to see that we have some idols It's not enough just to see that there is something else we really want, because we still really want it, even when we see it. The only thing that's going to change us, the only thing that's going to eradicate our love for these dead and lifeless things, is if we replace them with a greater love for a living God. Let me say that again. The only thing that is going to eradicate our love for these dead and lifeless idols, is if we replace them with a greater love for our living God. You know, the the Puritans, they talked about this idea, and they called it the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. In other words, that when we see the beauty of a true and living God, then the only thing That is the only thing that's going to expose how empty and shallow those lesser gods really are. It's not enough just to say, I won't love this idol anymore. But what you have to do is get a glimpse of who God is that, that eclipses all of those smaller idols. So that they seem like nothing in comparison. So that you can see them as they really are. See, and, and we have, at the end of the day, we've got no excuse for making the same kind of mistake that Jonah makes in this passage. Because isn't it the case that we have seen so much more of God's beauty than Jonah had seen? Jonah had been rescued momentarily by this fish, but, but what is the gospel, right? The gospel is that precisely because we have these idolatrous hearts, because we take even the smallest thing and we turn it into an ultimate thing and we try to look for it for life and meaning and salvation, because of that, our God came down and he took on flesh. And in the person of Jesus, he showed us the true image of the invisible God. He showed us once and for all what God is really like. On the cross, he showed us not just a little bit of his mercy to one group of people, but he showed us the full extent of his mercy and his love. And by his resurrection, he has proven who he really is. He is the one that we're all looking for. He is the one lover that's never going to leave you. He is that one firm foundation that will never crumble. He's the king whose nation will never fall. He's the treasure that's never going to rust or run out. He's the only one who can live up to his promises. He's the only one who will never fail you. The only thing that will ever drive out those lesser gods in your life is if we see who he really is and we love him more. So after all that, I think my challenge to you this morning is Nothing new, nothing special, nothing really besides what that old hymn says. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full at his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. If you know it, let's sing it together. Amen. Father, we pray that you would take these words and apply them to our hearts. That you would give us the faith to look deep at the things we really worship. God, we pray that at the end of the day we would serve you and you alone, and that this world around us would be transformed. Lord, we pray for those here who have been living their lives for lesser things. Maybe Secret idols have crept into their lives and enslaved them. Maybe they've never known you, and they're looking. God, I pray that today we would all see your beauty, and that we would respond with repentance and faith. Amen.